0: Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53, that's the text that the Lord in His providence has given us this morning as we make our way through Luke's gospel. And the text that we have before us today is one of, of sadness, it's one of severe sin, and it's also one of clear sovereignty, the sovereignty of God in all of it. And so if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. If you don't have a Bible, please do grab one in the seat pocket in front of you so that you can follow along in the scriptures this morning as we work, work through it. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53 While he was still speaking there came a crowd and the man called Judas one of the 12 was leading them he drew near to Jesus to kiss him but Jesus said to him Judas Would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This text is incredible. So much wrapped up here. So, what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture, in this section in particular, is the betrayal and arrest of the willing and sovereign Lord and Savior. Listen close. We're seeing the betrayal. And the arrest of this willing and sovereign Lord and Savior. That's what we're seeing in this particular account. Last week, Luke gave us the account of Jesus on the way to the cross, facing this temptation and sorrow. Luke's giving us an account of that, that we might see Christ on the way to the cross, face temptation and sorrow through prayer. And here, Luke records and gives us this account of Christ's betrayal, arrest, or the betrayal of Christ, the arrest, and yet at the same time in all of this, the complete control of Christ. He is betrayed by one of his disciples. He's seized and arrested by the apostate nation of Israel who have rejected their Messiah. They're full of pride. They're full of false expectations. They're full of self-righteousness. He's arrested by the Roman Gentile authority, and yet in all of this, Christ is willing to go in this direction. So I've entitled the message this morning exactly what I told you, the betrayal and the arrest of the willing and sovereign Lord and Savior. This is what's happening here. He's being betrayed. He's being seized and arrested. And yet he is in complete control. He's going willingly. He is the sovereign Lord and he will become the savior of sinners. And so Jesus here is ultimately submitting to the father's predetermined plan to save sinners. He's in complete control at this point. We'll see his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his perfect obedience. We'll see him declare himself as the eternal God. And yet, he must die and become the savior of many. Listen now, in this moment, the, the hour of darkness has arrived. You should feel the weight of this darkness. It, it should be smothering. As we walk through this passage, Jesus, though, will cooperate with his captors because he's willing and obedient to the Father to accomplish this plan for the Father. So in this section, Jesus is delivered into the hands of evil men. That's what Luke 9 9- said would happen. Luke 9, said, Jesus would be delivered into the hands of evil men. Luke 18 says the same thing. He would be delivered into the hands of, of evil men. Even when the angel comes, after Jesus has, has died, the angel explains that he had to be delivered into the hands of evil men. And so Jesus does this willingly, obediently, to sacrifice himself to reconcile sinners to God. And through all of this, we see his perfect obedience and his willing sacrifice, but that he is in complete control. And yet still we see these evil men who reject him. And this is the picture of the world. This is the picture of those who, though he came to teach truth. Clearly, to teach God's truth accurately, to live perfectly, to love sacrificially, to die willingly, his people, Israel, would reject him. There will be false disciples. There will be false converts like Judas who follow his teaching and yet are unconverted. There's false converts in this picture. It's people like Demas. You ever heard of Demas? I heard a pastor say once, don't be a Demas. That should be the motto of your life. Don't be a Demas. You see in Colossians that Demas was was, uh, said to be a a great, wonderful follower. part Part of the group of disciples that Paul encouraged that he was following Christ. And yet in 2 Timothy, Paul says that, Demas was in love with the present world and then deserted the disciples. He was a false convert. Judas here is that. And then we see these self-righteous religious leaders who are trusting in the merit of their traditions and reject Christ. We see these worldly mindless crowds that are here who are fickle, who are superficial. At one point we praising Christ and now are rejecting him. And yet we see Christ here be rejected as even the true Lord and Savior. And so as we walk through this, we're gonna see two features of Christ's arrest here. Number one, we'll see the betrayal and rejection, verses 47 through 48. And number two, we'll see his willingness and sovereignty in verses 49 through 53. I mean, this is exactly what we're seeing here. This betrayal and this arrest, this rejection, and yet this willingness and this sovereignty of this Lord who will become the Savior. So verses 47 through 48, we'll see the betrayal and the rejection. And verses 49 through 53, we'll see his willingness and sovereignty. Let's start with the betrayal and rejection. Verse 47 through 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd... And the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? This is the betrayal and the rejection. It says in verse 47, look at it, while he was still speaking. So Christ had entered the garden. He was tempted to avoid the cross. To avoid separation from the Father. To avoid drinking the cup of God's wrath. To avoid God's judgment. He was tempted to avoid that. And he moves into the garden desperate. And turns to prayer. He tells his disciples, sit here while I go pray. His intention in entering the garden was to go in and pray, to, to commune with the Father. He would be in submission. Even though he was tempted to forsake the cross, he would submit to the Father's will. In verse 42, look, look at verse 42 from last, from the previous section. It says, Jesus. Clearly said to the Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is in the garden. He's tempted to avoid the cross, and yet he's in complete submission to the Father. And then he rises in defeat, release, resolute to go to the cross. He's ready to go. And how do we know he's ready to go? Well, in John's account, you can just turn there, turn to John chapter 18 verse 11 Jesus we just saw in the gar- in the garden in his time of prayer said father if you're willing let this cup pass for me he rises in defeat over uh, defeating temptation And we see evidence of this in John chapter 18, verse 11. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So in his prayer, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass for me. Not my will, but your will be done. And later on, he says, there's only one option. Drink the cup that the Father has given me. So he will not give in to temptation. He'll be obedient. He's going to triumph over temptation through prayer. And this is evidenced by this resolute desire to drink the cup of God's wrath. So back in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples, remember, that they should be praying, that they should wrestle in prayer so that they wouldn't give up and they wouldn't give in to temptation. And yet they fall asleep. Remember? They will not be able to resist temptation because they're unwilling to pray. And we're going to see their failures here shortly. And a lot of that we can attribute to their lack of prayerfulness. Jesus says, pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. And they certainly do. They scatter. Peter denies Christ. And we we can see that their lack of prayerfulness is the cause of much of their failure. And so soon they're gonna scatter. And so Jesus then, remember, he comes back to the disciples the last time after he prays, and he says, Rise, the betrayer is at hand. My betrayal is at hand. And so this is where we sit. And right before this, Jesus tells the disciples, we can see it in Matthew's account in verse 26. Jesus tells them, the disciples, to watch and pray. Listen, listen now. Before this whole scene unfolds that we're in today, Jesus has told his disciples not only to pray, but to watch and pray. And he says that you might not fall into temptation. Now, I think it's important to note that this is throughout the scriptures. Isn't it interesting that in connection with prayer, there's this command to be watchful and to be alert. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. Ephesians 6 says, The famous Armor of God passage says that you should pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance. 1 Corinthians 16 says to be watchful. Luke chapter 21, uh, 34 through 38 says the same thing. What does this mean that we should be watchful and that we should be alert? Is it simply because the betrayers were coming to capture Jesus? Well, He certainly knew when they would come, but he wasn't telling his disciples to be aware for this reason. Listen, what this means is that his disciples need to be aware of what's going on. They need to be aware of what's about to happen. They need to be aware of what's happening in general spiritually. And I just want to make a note here that I think this is the reason for so much prayerlessness in the Christian life is that you have no idea what's actually going on. You don't know what you need to pray for. You don't know your serious need to pray. The threat of sin and Satan and false teaching. You don't know what to pray for. You're not watchful or alert. You're disengaged spiritually, so of course you're prayerless. When you're engaged spiritually, you know what you need to pray for. It's like a, maybe like a man who's sitting on a couch watching cartoons all day. And there's a war going on outside his windows. His drapes are closed. And he's wondering why everyone's out there fighting. He's having a great old time just watching his cartoons. He's got no idea what's going on and therefore is not engaged in the war. And so many Christians are disengaged spiritually They're not spending time in God's word. They're not desiring to share their faith. They don't understand the threat of Satan and sin. They don't see the nearness of eternity. They don't see the reality of death and therefore they're prayerless. If you wanna be a prayerful Christian, you you have to start to be aware of what's actually going on, what the threat is. And you'll know what to pray for and you'll be driven to pray. And so he tells his disciples here to to be watchful and to pray. He gets up. He tells the disciples the betrayer is at hand. And verse 47, move to the text. He's still speaking. He's still speaking. This is the exact timing, this is the exact moment that he's ready for. He's not at all caught off guard. He has just been triumphant in prayer. He tells the disciples, the betrayer is at hand. He's been betrayed. And while he's still speaking, there comes a what? Verse 47, a crowd. Now, who is this crowd? Well, Matthew tells us, listen now, Matthew tells us this is a great crowd. There could be hundreds here. Many scholars believe that there's, 200 people in this crowd. And these are the common Jews, the rejecters of Christ as the Messiah. Who else is here while we're at it? Verse 52, look down at verse 52. There's also the chief priests who are arriving. They ran the temple business. Then there's also verse 52, the officers of the temple. They were the temple police. Look up at verse 50. We also know that the high priest is there. The high priest. We know that one of his servants is there. In Mark's account, it tells us that the scribes are there. Verse 52, again, here in this section, tells us the elders are there. Those are the members of the Sanhedrin. And in John's account, we see that the Pharisees are also there. So you have the crowd, which are the common Jews who have rejected Christ as Messiah. You have the chief priests who run the temple business. You have the officers who are the temple police. You have the elders who are the members of the Sanhedrin. You have a servant of the high priest. You have the scribes. You have the Pharisees. And then, of course, in John's account, it tells us that we have the Roman troops and their commanding officer or the captain. And for the captain to be there, there are significant amount of troops there. And so this is all who show up. And this is, this is a volatile time in Jerusalem at this point because there is alertness, high alertness that there would be some kind of insurrection at the Passover, that the Jews would turn on the Roman people and try to overtake them and release themselves from the bondage of, the, uh, of Rome. And so Roman troops are on high alert for Jews who would try to, to turn on them. But there's someone who's significant that's also there. Look at verse 47. There's the man called who? Who? Judas. All of these people are here. Christ has risen from prayer. He's been triumphant. He's told his disciples to watch and pray. They have to be alert of what's going on. They have to know. They have to be watchful. They can't be spiritually apathetic. There's a war going on. There's a battle here. But he tells them, get up. That's enough. He says, the betrayer is at hand, or I've been betrayed, while he's still speaking, everyone shows up, but in particular, this man Judas shows up. He's called the man, the man called Judas. It's a familiar, a familiar phrase here because he's the one we know. We already know him, this man Judas. And he makes clear That he is one of the what? Verse 47? Twelve. And Luke here is pointing out and he's magnifying the horror of this account. He's one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve. And he is leading them. Verse 47, he's leading them. John 18 tells us he knew the place where they were. And it also tells us that he procured all of them. He's leading them. He's preceding them. He's one of the 12 and he's the one who procured all of them. Meaning he's the one who got this whole thing to work out right. If you remember, Judas was with Jesus for three years. He was day Listen, he was daily listening to Jesus's teachings. He was trained in the exact same way as the other disciples. He saw Christ's miracles. He saw them being performed. He performed them himself as an apostle by Christ's authority You have to understand that at this moment here, Luke is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is being betrayed. This is not an outsider. This is an insider. This is not a stranger. This is a friend. This is not a visitor. This is a member. And he is betraying Christ. There's betrayal within the ranks. We know the story of how we got here because in Matthew's account, we know that Judas went and offered to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. He went in and asked. He said, what will you give me if I betray him? Money was his God. We know that they sought in Matthew's account tells us in Matthew 25, that, 26, that he, they sought to do this privately because they didn't want there to be an uproar with the people. They wanted to protect the love of praise that they had. They wanted the people not to turn against them, and yet they wanted to catch Jesus. And so they waited to some time in, in, to have some time in seclusion. So what happens is Matthew 26, Jesus exposes Judas as the betrayer at the meal. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas says, is this me? And Jesus says, yes. And then in John 13, we see that Judas releases himself from the table and goes out during the Passover meal. And then in John chapter 18, we see that he knew where to go to the garden because Jesus was also often there with the disciples. So Jesus allows him to know this place. He goes to this place because it's time for him to be betrayed. And so here's what Judas has done Judas has hurried up out of the meal. He has, it's after midnight, and he's gone and collected all the religious leaders. And he needed to collect those religious leaders so that they would go to the Roman officials and convince them to rise up and take Jesus. This was that Jesus posed a threat during the Passover to Rome. And there was a threat of insurrection. So they would convince the Roman officers who were already on edge that this was a severe threat. And Pilate was there during this time, during the Passover. And so he would have to give the permission for this to be done. So here's Judas coming out of the supper. He's been exposed. Jesus said that he would betray him. He goes and procures everybody. First, starting with the Jewish religious leaders, who would then go to the Roman officers, who would then get permission by Pilate. And they enter into the garden. This leads to the weapons. John tells us they have lanterns and torches. Verse 52, kind of jumping around in this. It says that he has, they have swords and clubs. So here comes this crowd and they have lanterns and torches and swords and clubs. Meaning they expected a fight. They expected him to run. And so we see then in verse 48, verse 47, that he drew near to Jesus to do what? Kiss him. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Verse 48, but Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Verse 48, he says, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Now, you have to understand here that the way that the Greek is laid out here, he's saying kiss first, emphasizing it and saying, this is what you will betray the son of man with son of man, referring back to his messianic uh, position, uh, thinking back to the book of Daniel. And so this Messiah who is sent from God to save sinners, you're going to betray him like a hypocrite, the, the God of the universe, you're going to betray him. It's not a good idea. So he says, you're going to betray the son of man with a kiss. Verse 40, 48 and Mark 14 tells us why this happens. It says the betrayer was at hand and he had given them a sign saying the one I kiss, this is from Mark 14, parallel account. The one I kiss is the man Seize him and lead him away under guard. So this is why Judas is coming in with this kiss. The, the Roman guards were perhaps unaware of exactly who Jesus was. At least some of them might be. And, and so Maybe also they expected the disciples to maybe to pretend to be Jesus. It was dark. It was after midnight. They had to bring torches. But this here is the picture of how blind sin makes you. Because listen to this now. Judas was exposed by Christ as the one who would betray him. And Judas left and he procured everybody. And he, com- he comes up with this plan. The one I kiss is the one whom you should seize. He's, he's the man. And he thought that in coming in with a crowd of people trailing behind him, that he would kiss Jesus. And that the disciples and Jesus wouldn't suspect the coincidence and that Judas would look as if he was innocent of betraying Christ. I mean, how, how dumb can you be? I mean, sin blinds. Judas has completely forgot the prediction from earlier. Jesus, uh, Judas has, has gone and collected everybody and then come in and he's going to kiss Jesus displaying an outward devotion. He calls him rabbi, we see in, a, in Mark's account. He kisses him and calls him rabbi. And then he's going to expect that no one would suspect him as the betrayer. This, at this point, Judas is, is not, um, is not uh, yet open to his hypocrisy. He's still hiding it. And so you have to understand here at this point that Judas is is showing outward love and commitment to Christ, faithfulness to Christ in this moment. And yet in his heart, he he is disobedient. He's a false convert. And so this is just the blinding reality of sin. How oftentimes this is true of us and true of those who reject Christ, who have seen and heard the word of God and yet forget about it completely, and go on to show outward devotion to Christ, and yet inward are uncommitted to him, and think they're going to avoid the consequences. This is, this is folly. So he draws near to, to Jesus. He kisses him, pretending to be a close friend. This is flattery, hypocrisy, outward expressing, uh, outwardly expressing devotion and loyalty, and yet internally disobedient. And it's all for himself. This is all for himself. This is all for his self-interest. He expresses love and care outwardly, but inwardly he's uncommitted to Christ. And can I just tell you something? That is the primary example of a false convert. One who has forgotten the word of God. The one who thinks he can get away with his hypocrisy. The one who thinks that he will show outward devotion to Christ and yet inwardly remain uncommitted. And also at the same time doing all of it for his own purposes. Trying to manipulate the situation for his own gain. This is the definition of false conversion. He is a false convert. uh, convert. But we see that Jesus isn't fooled. Verse forty eight or verse 49 when he arose and when those who were around him i'm sorry verse 48 he, he says to judas would you betray the son of man with a kiss and so we see that jesus knows of his betrayal here jesus responds now this is important judas performed this little signal to the group right and jesus is submissive to the father so what does he do here he receives the kiss judas receives the kiss Judas is clearly mistaking Christ's obedience to God for weakness. He's mistaking Christ's obedience for weakness. In his humility, Christ is receiving this kiss. He's more concerned with obedience to the Father, he's more concerned with faithfulness to the Father, and yet he receives, and so he receives this kiss. But this hypocrisy is despicable. He's, 12, he's one of the 12 and he disobeys the Lord here. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this, but Mark tells us that the kiss actually happened. He actually kissed him. And so he says, Rabbi. And at the height of this, at the height of this, we see that they laid hands on him and seized him. And, uh, and the other accounts tell us that. So this is the Betrayal. This is the arrest. This is the rejection. This is the blindness of sin. This is the pride. This is the false conversion. This is the mindlessness of those participating here. And you have to understand all of them here. I mean, you have a false convert. You have a crowd who is fickle, love Jesus one day, turn away from him the next as soon as he doesn't meet their expectations. You have the religious leaders who are self-righteous and you have the Roman troops who will come by force, who are just kind of mindless. They're just gonna do what the Jews want them to do. And you have to understand that this is a real picture of those who still reject Christ. You have false converts. You have religious who trust in their self-righteousness. You have mindless people who don't even think real deeply for themselves about Christ. And you have all of these wrapped up in the world. And maybe some of you in here today, maybe at this point now, you you are really a false convert. You've made a declaration at some point, but you've turned away from Christ so often that it's just clear you're not converted. Maybe you're one who's trusting in your own self-righteousness and think you don't need Christ like the religious leaders did. Maybe you're like the fickle crowd who loves Jesus one day despises him the next and would crucify him because he doesn't meet your expectations. And my desire for you is that you would repent, that you would truly trust in Christ and become a true disciple. You have to understand also that these are the people that you'll face in this world. Though Christ was obedient, though he lived this perfect life, though he was willing to die, though he was doing this willingly and yet he's still the sovereign Lord, you have those in this world who reject Christ. And think that they can manipulate the son of God. And we need to call them to repent. And so this is the rejection and the betrayal. Now, the next part we clearly see. The willingness and the sovereignty of Christ. So this is the betrayal and the arrest. Evil men have Christ in their hands. And think that they are, they are winning and yet Christ clearly displays that he is only going to the cross because he's willing, and this is part of the sovereign plan of God. So he's not being overtaken. Don't worry. <laughs> he's not being overpowered here. He's in complete control. Verses 49 through53. And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, "Lord, shall we strike with the sword?" And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? And when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of, of darkness. Here, what we're seeing here is we're confronted with Jesus's obedience with his willingness with his sovereign control with his with his desire to to fulfill the father's plan at this point it's clear that this is no overpowering of christ instead it's a willing laying down his life no one takes his life but he lays it down and that he's the sovereign lord And that he is doing this in order to become the savior of many. And so the betrayal and the arrest, yet the willingness and the sovereignty of this Lord who will become this savior. And so let me tell you, because there's a lot to be gleaned from the parallel accounts. At this point, we see in verse 49, the disciples say, Lord, shall we strike? Now that's, worthy to talk about in and of itself, but there's more in the parallel accounts before this question happens. And we've got to know what happens. So in these, in in Matthew's account, here's what Jesus says. He says to Judas as he kisses him, friend, do what you came to do. This is Jesus's response. Jesus is not being overpowered or tricked. Jesus is willingly heading to the cross. In John's account, it says this Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus is in complete control. He's the Lord, He's sovereign, and He's willingly going to the cross. In John's account, He also says this Listen now, listen. He says, Whom do you seek? Jesus asks the question to the to this group of people who are in front of him. He says, "Who do you whom do you seek?" And they answered him, and they said, "Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus replies in the garden, "I am he." Now, this is an authoritative declaration of himself as God. He says, "I am he." And he's used this in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 15, asserting his divine position as God. It is him declaring himself to be God. And how do we know that he actually meant that? Well, it tells us that when he said that, and this is all happening between the kiss and between this question by the disciples, should we should we pull our swords out? Start slaying people? All of this is happening in between. Jesus says, "Whom do you seek? I am he." He says, "Come forward, do what you came to do." Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, but when he says, "I am he," this divine act of power and authority occurs. And it says that everyone was jolted back to the ground. And so this is what's happening at this point. Jesus asks, who'd you come for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And as soon as he says that, everyone's jolted back and goes to the ground. I mean, he is clearly showing his sovereignty as Lord. No one is going to overpower me. I'm going willingly and I'm making this very clear. In John's account, it says that also he asked the second time. After this occurs, they get up, <laughs> probably dust off their knees. And they, Jesus asks the second time, whom do you seek? And you can see all this by putting all these accounts together. You can go to all four accounts, all, all, all four gospel writers, um, tell of this account. And you can put all these pieces together yourself. You know that. And you can, you can put this whole thing together. So Jesus asks a second time. He says, whom do you seek? To which they replied the same thing, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says again, I am he. And not only declaring himself as the sovereign eternal God, who is completely in control and is going willingly here, but He's also asking, listen now, he's also asking this question twice at this point because he's emphasizing, you came for me. I'm he, you came for me. Now, in doing that, not only is he declaring his his divinity, but he says in John's account, it says that a third time he says, I am he. And then he demands that they let the disciples go. So he's not only declaring his divinity but and his sovereignty and lordship, but he's also saying that he's the one that they came for. Let the disciples go. And he demands that they let the disciples go. He's not giving them authority to take them. Now, why is he doing this? Well, because it's, John tells us the reason why he says that. It says that he said this to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one of them. And G- in John's gospel, John 6, John 10, John 17, speaks of the same thing, the perseverance of true disciples based on God's keeping of their salvation. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is ensuring that his disciples will not fall away. Meaning he is displaying his omnipotence, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his high priestly and shepherding work as king. Like earlier in Luke chapter 22, when he told Peter and the disciples that they would be tested, and yet that by his intercession, they would not fall away. And so at this point from... By keeping, uh, to keep their faith from failing, Jesus knew at this point that if they were arrested, that if they were imprisoned, that if they were threatened by death, that it would be more than their faith could handle at this point. And so he protects them and ensures that it wouldn't come to pass by demanding that his disciples are let go. And so this is incredible. Jesus is displaying his sovereignty all over the place here. But can I tell you this? This is, I mean, that's really why he said that. He said, I'm he, let them go in order to fulfill the plan that he would not lose one of his disciples. He was ensuring the perseverance of their faith. That's incredible. And can I tell you, this is true of all disciples. All, listen now, all true disciples All true disciples, God will ensure that your faith does not fail. But it's him that's ensuring it. The Lord will keep all true disciples from ever permanently falling away. By his sovereign, active intercession, his protection, his strength, he will keep a true disciple in this life in order to make it to eternity. Though they'll be weak, though they'll be vulnerable, though they'll be under Satan's attack, They will not fall away because their faith will be actively protected by Christ. So many times I think that we think we just pray the prayer, we're good. We're gonna make it to heaven. And do you understand that if it is not for Christ's active, high priestly work and his omnipotence, overseeing your life, protecting it from falling away, you would fall away. And Christ is, is showing that he is the protector of the faith of true disciples. Christ will ensure that all true disciples make it to the end by his active intercession in heaven. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, tells us that he'll never let a dis- his true disciples be tempted to beyond, uh, beyond what they're able to bear. And so many times we take this verse out of context, don't we? But what is meant there is, that he'll never let them be tempted beyond what they can bear to keep them from falling away. Salvation is in view in that verse. It's not that you're just not going to face anything uh, hard. You're not going to face anything that is just too difficult for you. You will at times face things that are seemingly too much to bear, but all of his true disciples, he will not let them fall away, experience so much temptation, and so much pressure that they would turn from their faith. In the new covenant, Jeremiah tells us that he will keep his, his people. And so this is true. And so eternal security comes by active, constant, faithful, merciful protection. That's why Romans eight tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All true disciples will be kept. And so and so this is what's happening. The disciples will scatter, but they're going to turn back again. And so this is also insight into the fact that Judas is not a true disciple because he's not being kept here. He's not being kept. And so the Lord here demands, as we've just mentioned in the other accounts, that they came from him, for him and that they let the other disciples go. Go. And so then we come to verse 49. That's where this picks up here. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And so it's clear that earlier they missed the point. Remember back in Luke chapter 22? uh, Well, we're in 22, but remember remember back in verse uh, 31 through 35 through 38 when he tells them that uh, they should get swords. And uh, they take, they miss the point. Jesus is making a point that they're gonna face opposition by the world. And they really believe that they need to use force here. They miss the point. So before Jesus can even answer, it says, verse 50, one of them, which we know is who? Peter struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That was his good ear. And we know that this man whose ear is cut off in John's account, it tells us that he's, obviously we see here the servant of the high priest, but we know that his name is Malchus. John tells us that. So Malchus, the servant of the high priest, at this point gets his ear cut off. And there's no question that Peter was not aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head. And Jesus, verse 51, in his divine mercy, Jesus says no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. He says no more of this, but you have to understand what's taking place at this point. We've seen so much at this point of Jesus declaring his control, his willingness, his sovereignty, his his willingness. Uh, laying down his life here. No one's overpowering him. He's in complete control here. But this is another example because Jesus, what he literally says here, it might be better translated as instead of no more of this, might be better translated, let them do this. the, the, The literal Greek is let go of this. And so you can get the idea that he can say no more of this. We can translate it that way or we can really say, let them do this. Let go of this. Don't try to stop this. And that's probably the better way. He's in complete control. He's willing. He's gonna obey the father. He is not trying to stop this. And so then Jesus in his mercy either picks up or simply just touches the ear. He might, maybe he picks up the scrap and puts it back on. Or maybe he just simply touches it But you have to understand, this is more clear proof of what he'll tell Pilate later. Remember when he tells Pilate that his kingdom is not over this world. And remember when he tells the religious leaders and the disciples earlier in Luke's gospel that he's not come for a physical kingdom. He's come to bring a spiritual kingdom. And this is proof. Jesus is not establishing this kingdom by a way of physical battle against the state or a a revolutionary battle against the soldiers of Rome. He's not come to establish this earthly kingdom. He's come to establish a spiritual kingdom. It's not gonna be advanced through him bringing his kingdom right now physically on earth. It's gonna be advanced through providing salvation for sinners. And so he's making clear here, this is not a physical battle that we're dealing with here. It's a spiritual one. And so he restores the ear And he just provides proof that he's not accomplishing this kingdom through a physical battle. Jesus makes clear he's willing to go. Let this be done. I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm in complete control. Let my disciples go. And uh, Jesus further then makes clear that he's willingly going to the cross. And we see this as we turn to verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temples and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against as against a robber with swords and clubs? And so you have to understand here that Jesus is making clear, he's saying, you had all the time in the world to arrest me when I was doing my ministry and now you're, now you're coming? And he's basically saying, the only reason why you're doing this is because I've allowed you. But before we even see this, I wanna point out to you that there's more that Jesus is making clear that, uh, to show that he's in control. If you can, just turn to Matthew's account of this in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is really, really clear what Jesus is doing in this section. Matthew 26, verses 52-52. Through fifty-four. Now this is after the high priest, the servant of the high priest's ear is cut off, but this is before he makes this statement about the clubs and the swords. And so we're putting these pieces together here, okay? And um, and so you can see that you, you can see this. Verse 51 is the striking of the servant's ear, right? And at verse 55, jump down to f- verse 55, you see he makes this statement about the clubs and the swords. And so Luke doesn't have this in his account, but it's right in line with the theme. Verse 52, showing that he's in complete control, that he's willingly laying down his life, that no one's overpowering him, that he's the sovereign Lord, and that he is doing this to obey the Father. Verse 52, he says this, put your swords back in its Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53. Look at this. You ready? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This is not coming by their overpowering. I don't need you to pull out your sword. At any moment, I could call 12 legions of angels. This is all being done to fulfill the scriptures. I'm going willingly. I'm the Lord who's becoming the Savior, but I'm in complete control. These betrayers and this arrest is not overpowering me. I'm doing this to save sinners. Jesus is making clear here he doesn't need protection. He's willingly sacrificing himself. In 2 Kings chapter 19, we see that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. And so how many do you think 12 legions of angels could kill? Tens of thousands of angels. In John chapter 18, it tells us that he is ready to take this cup. He doesn't need protection. He's willingly laying down his life. And he clearly shows this once again. Turn back to Luke. We're almost done here. Luke chapter 22. He's clearly showing this again by this next statement. I mean, this, these verses from 49 to 53, they are just over and over and over and over again displaying Christ's sovereignty, his lordship, his control, and therefore his willingness in laying down his life. He's doing this willingly or else he wouldn't be doing it at all. But we see it once again here in verse 52 to the end. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out, against, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What Jesus is saying here is this. If I'm truly a criminal, number one, why didn't you come out against me then? When I was teaching and I was vulnerable and I was out. And about with all the people. And what he's making clear here is he's exposing their evil intent. You're doing this in the dark. You brought all these people. You have corrupt motives. And you're bringing all of these weapons. You have murderous hearts. You could have, if I was really a criminal, you could have done this at any point. He's exposing that you're doing this with corrupt motives. He's left himself vulnerable during his whole ministry. But what he's really making clear here is this. The reason why this is happening is not because they are overpowering him, not because of their own strength, but because look at this at the end, because it's their hour. It's the power of darkness. He's saying this. You've come out day. You've come out with all these weapons You could have arrested me at any time, but you didn't. And the reason why you did not was because it wasn't the time. But the reason why you're doing so now and why I'm going to allow you to do this is because it's your hour. It's the hour and the power of darkness. It's not because of your clubs. It's not because of your swords. It's not because of your torches. It's because it's your hour. In Mark's account at this point, he says it's to fulfill the scriptures. And so he's just making it clear time after time after time in this section, his divine sovereignty and his willingness. This is the father's predetermined plan. And what he's saying here is this. It's God's sovereign plan. It's a time for evil. Literally saying this is the authority of darkness. And so for a limited time, evil will have their way. And for this limited time, the rule of evil, the spiritual forces, the rejecters of God, Satan and his plan will have authority and have their way. He's giving them this authority. And that's what's happening at this point. John 1 tells us the light came into the world, but the men loved the what? Darkness rather than light. These are the rejecters of God who did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so this is their hour. It's not because they're overpowering him. It's because he's giving himself up in the exact timing that God predetermined. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's willing They would mean this for evil, but God would mean this for good. Now, after this, we're told in the other accounts that all the disciples fled. And that was to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken of in Zechariah 13, 2. But Jesus would, would predict that they would turn back to him. And so as we conclude here, we see clearly these two sections, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus by evil men who are characterized as false converts, spiritually self-righteous, mindless, just kind of doing what someone else wants them to do. And a false convert. And. And I wonder if you find yourself there. And my encouragement to you is to repent. Repent but also these are the the categories of men who still reject the Messiah, false converts, self-righteous, religious, mindless, and just the fickle crowd who Christ doesn't really meet their expectations. But you have to be aware that though there are rejectors of Christ and though you yourself might reject him, he is in complete control. He willingly laid down his life. He is sovereign. He is divine. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's the Lord who has become the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning with a heavy heavy burden from this text. (sighs) That those who have rejected the Christ thought that they were Winning. Sin was so blinding. Judas forgets about the prediction, forgets about the Lord's words, displays his hypocrisy, leads out in sin. Not only does he sin, but he leads others to sin. The mindless crowd. The fickle crowd, the mindless troops, the self-righteous leaders who are proud, rejecting the Christ. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody who finds themselves in this category this morning, as one who would be among those people in the garden Rejecting and arresting and betraying the Christ, that they would fall on their knees and repent before it's too late, knowing that all evil men and all those who reject the Christ will find themselves in eternity apart from you. As we read earlier in our call to worship in the Psalm, that Judas was just replaced in his apostleship and that he would suffer the eternal consequences of his sin because you were working your divine plan and your hand was on your son. I pray that if there's anyone in here who's just mindless, who's a false convert, who's self-righteous, that they would repent before it's too late. Lord, I pray that as we go out into the world, that we would understand that these are the people who have decided not to follow you. This, This is the... The character, these are the characteristics of those who have rejected you. Let us not pacify that evil. Let us not attempt to just get along with the world. Let us see the reality that they are rejectors of you who will suffer eternity apart from you. And therefore, let us evangelize them. Let us tell them of their of their fate. Because we know. That though evil men reject you, that you are still sovereign. You are in control. This was your willing plan. And that you're the Savior in the Lord. And so let this, be, let this be so. In Jesus' name, amen.